Wonderful. And so as we uh, look to God's word, we come back to Luke chapter 11. We'll pick up with verse 45 as we give thanks for the good news that this beloved physician delivered to us and uh, that continues to be delivered to us. What a great week, a wonderful time uh, with our folks from Westminster, Dr. Lilback, Dr. Rester, as we considered uh, just what we're supposed to do in this world and how we are to exercise that uh, Dominion Covenant. A lot of things to continue to think about in the weeks, months, years to come if Jesus tarries. But let's look. Uh, here in Luke 11, of course, the Lord Jesus is, remember, the big picture. He is uh, on his way to Jerusalem. He is uh, going there because he knows he will lay down his life there. The disciples still don't get that, even though Christ has been telling them. But as he is on his way, he continues to encounter people, and he continues to teach and carry out his ministry. And so having some harsh things to say with regard to the Pharisees, that uh, sect among the Jews in Jesus' day that were the, that, that were the penultimate legalists who were keeping the minutest aspects of the law, he encounters objection to his words. So let's look. Luke 11, beginning with verse 45. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses. And you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. May the Lord bless this reading of his words. We give him praise for it. Amen. And so we build monuments today. Just uh, not too long ago, I was listening to someone who was talking about our own American history and was lauding our founding fathers and was talking about our first president, George Washington, and mentioned about how we can be thankful that in his deism, he did not impose upon us any specific form of Christianity. And at that point, I wish I had had Dr. Lilback's book to airdrop on him, which clearly, just by the size of it, absolutely eradicates any notion of George Washington having been a deist. 
And yet this person was talking about how wonderful it is that we have a monument in Washington, D.C. to our first president and his view of God, which, of course, it wasn't his view. And so we find ourselves in a time in which many people will laud the monuments and memorials that are erected to individuals that, because of their misunderstanding of history or their denial of it, they do not connect that structure to the actual person. We have something of that here in this passage. We have Jesus criticizing those who erected tombs and monuments to martyred prophets, and yet they contradict the messages of those prophets. They would honor their memory, but yet not live up to the message. And so it is something for us to consider today. Jesus, of course, was very critical of the Pharisees, and he said some very hard things to them. Woe to you, Pharisees, he said repeatedly. And so you wonder how he got as far as he did before somebody objected. But finally he did. One of the lawyers, which we might understand better if we think of it as an expert in the law, in religious law. After all, we don't want to pick on attorneys too much, right? Mike Novak, bless his heart, on Thursday evenings, he goes ahead and gives us the lawyer jokes so that we won't give them to him as he's leading our class. So it's one of these experts in the law that answers up and says, you know, you're offending us. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also, as Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees. And uh, if we have the Lord Jesus in the way that a lot of people would have us to understand him at this point, perhaps Christ might have apologized. But inasmuch as he did no sin and never had to apologize, have you ever noticed that in Scripture? Jesus doesn't apologize. He never confesses sin. He doesn't ask forgiveness of sins. Saw a children's book recently, and on one page of it, it had uh, Jesus coming to John the Baptist to be baptized so that his sins could be washed away. That's atrocious theology. Uh, make sure you read those books before you give them to your kids. He never had to apologize because he never sinned. And so he turns to the man who objected and said, woe to you also. Woe to you lawyers, as he used this strong word of condemnation. And gives reason for it. For they loaded the people with burdens hard to bear, while they themselves weren't even willing to lift a finger. It is a strong condemnation, and one from which we must learn. And it is simply that it is an egregious sin to saddle others with burdens we refuse to bear. When we come up with rules and regulations, when we come up with legalities that don't bear out in truth, we see and understand that we are committing an egregious error. These lawyers were all about rules, and they wanted people to, uh, to do things they thought they ought to do, but they weren't willing to do them themselves. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
The experts in the law, by the way, I'm just wandering around here. Don't worry too much. I'm sort of like a monkey on a leash. I can't go too far. You laugh way too much at that. The Apostle Paul wasn't conducting his ministry the way that the scribes and the Pharisees did, the way that the experts in the law, who said, do as I say. But Paul wanted to couple that together with his own life. Not only listen to what I teach, but do what you've seen in me. That's what a good teacher does. Now, we can't ever attain perfection, and it's not like anybody can follow us down to the minutest detail. But even so, a true teacher of the Lord Jesus will not only preach the truth, but will live a life that at least is in harmony with the truth, if it's not in perfect unity because of our sin nature. So Paul does the right thing in pointing people to the, to the perfect. Think upon the things of God. And by the way, look at me and practice these things. But the lawyers fell under Jesus' condemnation because they didn't do that. They were all about espousing all of these layers of requirements that they had added on to the scriptures. And the scriptures were so buried beneath these legalities that the people had little knowledge of what the scriptures actually taught. Oh, how careful we need to be. And not saddling others with those types of burdens. He, uh, he didn't miss words. Loading people with burdens. Think about that. We've all carried burdens. We've all tried to pick up things that were too heavy for us. And, and we know what that's like. I remember the story they used to tell when I was growing up. Because I was around a, an older generation that remembered the days before the automobile. And uh, my grandfather told about his father. We referred to him as Papa. Papa used to. Say the man was carrying a sack of heavy feed, about 100, 150 pounds worth of seed from town one day. The man came along on a buckboard, a wagon, and said, uh, let me give you a ride. The man was grateful. He climbed up in the wagon and still had that sack of feed over his shoulder as he sat down on the board. And the man said, well, just, uh, just toss your load in the back there. The man said, no, you've already been nice enough to give me a ride. You don't have to carry my sack of feed, too. <laughs> Think about that. If, this, if these scribes and Pharisees said, you know, get on board. By the way, keep that burden on your shoulder. And by the way, let me add to it even more poundage that you yourself will have to bear. Christ came into the world to relieve us of our burden. He said, take my yoke upon you for it is easy. He didn't say it was heavy. He didn't say trade your heavy one in for one that's of even greater weight. He said, give up the one you have, for my burden is easy. For Christ himself has taken our burden of guilt on himself. And we become guilty of the same transgression that these lawyers did when we try to add requirement upon top of requirement as we expect people to carry legal burdens. Woe to you lawyers. We need to hear those words. Those who refuse to repent bear actual guilt that is compounded continuously. I've struggled long over this point, trying to think of the best way to say it. I'm not smart enough to get into compound interest and how that works. Somebody explained to me one time what preferred interest is. That's, you know, where you might prefer it, but you ain't going to get it. <laughs> compound interest that continues to accrue. In life, 
as we have transgressed, as we have committed sin against the holy God, it's not just that we have committed one or two or three transgressions. It's that guilt continues to accumulate. And it's not only the guilt of our own transgressions, but it's generational. We carry with us literally the sins of our fathers. And apart from the grace of God which and the blood of Christ, which cleanses us of every sin, by not repenting, we not only are bearing our own guilt and transgressions, we're carrying along with us the guilt of generations before us. Why would I say that? Well, look at our text here. He says, uh, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. J.C. Ryle says they profess to honor the memory of the prophets while they lived in the very same ways which the prophets had condemned. You see, they were all about building the memorials, the monuments, the tombs. But they weren't about carrying forward the message that the prophets proclaimed. Our own lives can serve in this regard. Are we monuments to what the prophets actually said? Or are we just bearing witness to a tradition that we're comfortable with? There's all kinds of sayings that you get into at this point. Some people have said, you know, that um, that tradition is the living faith of those now dead. And after all, we talk about our father Abraham. We talk about the faith of our fathers. I remember singing that hymn many, many times in worship and doing it here. And how grateful we are that the faith we now have is the same faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in generations past. I'm grateful to be in line in that great stream of, of the faith. But traditionalism, as Pelican said, is the dead faith of those now living. Monuments, tombs that have been erected, scores and scores of stained glass windows and all kinds of tributes that carry with it the trappings of a Christianity, but the essence of it has long since passed away. I remember sitting in Charleston, South Carolina, on our honeymoon back in 1993. And we were in a restaurant. There was a bar there. And there was some food that was pretty good. And we were enjoying that. And I began to look around and I realized, looking at the shapes of the windows, and I thought, well, it looks like a church window. And so did that one. And that one. And then I began to look at the structure of the ceiling and I realized we literally were sitting in what had been a church building. Long since dead, now inhabited by a, a bar and a restaurant. And I thought, what was this congregation like? What happened right here in the middle of this thriving metropolitan center? And now just a building housing something else. And I wonder how many of us are like that. Outwardly, we take on the appearance of what others would presume to be a Christian. But inwardly? Maybe something else. Maybe we all need to listen to this and ask ourselves, do I have an actual living, vital faith in Christ? Or am I just about building monuments? The problem is that the people of Jesus' generation were compounding the sins of the previous because they weren't really honoring the prophet. They were building the monument. And as one 
scholar said, T.W. Manson, they kill the prophets, you make sure they're dead. Our generation in many ways is like that. Previous generations despise the message. We pretend to honor them. But on the other hand, we're pretty glad they're dead. Imagine a John the Baptist preaching in our generation. Imagine an Isaiah proclaiming the word of God. Imagine a Jeremiah who wept in his own time because of the sins of his people. If he were to see those who named the name of Christ in our day, and yet who really are not vitally united to the Lord Christ, we pay lip service. And yet we don't really follow, having listened to the message and repented and taken it to heart. Yes, we too are all about building monuments and memorials because those are easier to control than the prophets who actually proclaim the message. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, Wow, here I am on a passage of Scripture about which so much has been written and there's a seminary president here and I'm expected to explain this to you. There is not a verse of Scripture that contains these actual words. I think what we have to simply say here is that the Lord Christ, who is the very embodiment of the wisdom of God, knows what God's intention is with regard to these matters and he's able to convey it. And he does so. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. That's God's intention. That's his purpose. And we may wonder why. Why would God do that? Why would he send people knowing that they were going to suffer and that they were going to die? But then we have to ask ourselves the question. Why would he send his son knowing that he was going to have to suffer and die? Because it is through this means by which the work of God and the kingdom of God comes upon the earth. And so, these prophets were not lauded in their day. Just like many of the people that we honor in our own time were not necessarily popular. It's remarkable to me about uh, how strong the language is of some politicians in the time of George Washington. How they cruelly criticized him and mischaracterized him and, and lied about his intentions. For their own political gain. But then after he died, they jumped on the bandwagon with everyone else and said, oh, he was the father of our country. And so many today will talk about being followers of the Lord Christ, but really want nothing to do with his actual teaching. They like the little sound bites that you can pull off of social media that very often have nothing to do with Jesus' actual words. They'll take that and go with it but not really the actual words of Christ, not really the actual words of the prophet. In God's wisdom, he has sent those who were faithful, and yet they met with their deaths. They were killed. And he goes all the way back to Abel. Abel, who leaves behind not one written word except the words that are written about him, who gave unto God the first fruits, the best of his flock. Cain merely gave some. And as you heard read today, we remember how that Cain became jealous of his brother because Abel's sacrifice was received inasmuch as it had been offered by faith, having given the best by faith. Cain just simply going through the motions. He was jealous and he killed his brother. 
To my knowledge, there's no monument to Abel anywhere. Perhaps there is, but there's no uh, large marble edifice to remind us of who Abel is, and yet his blood cries out from the ground, reminding us that it is by faith that we will be found pleasing to God. God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The legalist might understand that to mean, well, those who work for him, those who achieve, those who give their very best. If you do that, then God will reward you. But that's not what it says. Those who diligently seek him, trust him, will be rewarded. A reminder of faith as Abel speaks to us of faith. Zechariah, who died between the altar and the sanctuary. Again, lots of thoughts and ideas about who this particular Zechariah was, as there are two major individuals by that name in the Old Testament. There's no need to get into that whole discussion and debate. Jesus knows what he's talking about, and the Zechariah he's speaking of died exactly where he says he died. He was killed there. A man who was being faithful to the Lord, and yet people who claimed to know the Lord killed him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is getting all the religious people here? We might expect him to be after the Herodians or the Romans. But he speaks rather to those who counted themselves as God's people, demonstrating that they were the wayward ones. And so here you are on a church on Sunday morning. It would be a lot more comfortable for us if the preacher standing up here would get on those worldly sinful people out there that ought to straighten up and start living right. Instead of talking to us, I found myself in your seat and in your shoes all the time as the Word of God comes and convicts me once again of my own inconsistencies. What we need to know is that hindering others from acquiring the knowledge of grace is a great evil. When we in any way exhibit the notion or idea that those who live life and are otherwise good enough, gain heaven. We're standing on dangerous ground. These lawyers were all about not just keeping the law as God had inspired the law, but they imposed, again, these other requirements, other directives, other instructions. Think about how Jesus was criticized because he healed someone on the Sabbath. Think about how they came after him because he allowed his disciples to pluck heads of grain on a Sabbath day and rub them between their hands and eat them because they were hungry. Think about how that he was roundly criticized for not washing before he ate. A ceremonial washing not required by actual scripture before eating, and yet they wanted to impose that on him. Oh, we need to be so very careful when we try to impose on others what actually is not required. I, uh, I recall some years ago, and I have to be careful here, but I think I can do this because, after all, I'm up here wearing a necktie and a jacket. But years ago, there was a, a man in my church who was asked to uh, usher, and he came to church on a particular Sunday, and he didn't have on a coat and tie, and he was ushering. I literally did not notice. But when we were on the way home, someone in my family pointed it out and said, I can't believe he wasn't wearing a coat and tie. 
And I was thinking how excited I was that he was coming to church. Just be careful. I know we want to maintain a certain modicum. I mean, after all, here I am. I, I can't look nice, so I try to dress somewhat nicely. Even as Papa would say, put on a choke strop. But we have to be so careful that we not impose on others things that are not actually required of them and preach the real gospel. That salvation comes by way of repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus so that his righteousness is imputed to us on the basis of faith, not on our efforts to earn it. Have I meddled enough today or do you want me to go further? Oh, I'm out of time. Just think about that. Hindering others from acquiring the knowledge of grace is a great evil. And that's what they were guilty of. Woe to you lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves. And you hindered those who were entering. Wow, it grieves my heart as I think about so many who stand in pulpits like this one on a given Lord's Day. Who have not trusted in Christ. Who believe that those who advocate for that are on the fringe. They call us all kinds of names, evangelicals and fundamentalists, and they rail against us, and they yet nevertheless impose on their people all sorts of legalities and thoughts and notions and ideas. If they're not with them in this social trend that they're advocating at any particular moment, then they're outside of the what? The mainstream? It's not the mainstream I'm concerned about. It's the river of life that I want to be about. That river of life that issues forth from the throne of God that the Lord Jesus is the source of. That salvation that is in Him. Let the world say what it wants to about us. But let us be faithful in continually pointing others to Christ. For He is salvation as we trust in Him. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Not those who have attained standing. Not those who have a great resume of accomplishments but little children let them come to me and Jesus said we have to be like little children now remember there's a difference between being childlike and childish always want to point that out he's not affirming us in immaturity he's saying our faith should be childlike yes as Ryle says they, they profess to honor the memory of the prophets while they lived in the very same ways which the prophets had condemned, they openly neglected their advice and teaching, and yet they pretended to protect their graves. And so, Jesus, having said these things to them, they became all the more intent on looking for an excuse to do away with him. Rather than receiving the word and in humility, and repenting of their transgressions and sackcloth and ashes, they said, we've got to get rid of this man. He is impinging on our power. He is speaking out of turn. He is taking away from our own reputation. And so they sought to kill him, lying in wait for him, to catch him, saying something he might say. Oh, how like them we are. Correction is not easy to take, is it? None of us likes to have to admit that we're wrong. But it's entirely necessary for us to admit our wrong. 
I have failed. I have sinned. I have gotten it wrong. And may God give us humility that we may maintain a faith that actually is rather than the one we think there ought to be. I know I'm not saying that the best way, but it's something for us to consider. What is the faith you possess? What form of Christianity do you hold to? Whose teaching have you fallen under that's influenced you that perhaps may not be in keeping with Scripture, but you're maintaining it nevertheless because it was so-and-so who told you that? Might have even been a relative. Might have been a preacher or a Sunday school teacher. But whatever teaching that is, if it doesn't line up with actual Scripture, it's wrong. And I put mine right in there with the rest of them. Let us believe in the Lord Jesus as he's actually revealed in the Bible. Not as we might wish him to be. Let us adhere to the scriptures as they actually are written. Not as we prefer to perceive. And may God grant that our faith be genuine. For after all, Abel died while Cain went on to live his life. So with a mark. May our lives bear out the faith of Abel rather than seeking to be successes in the here and now only to discover that we're failures in the end. Far better to have, an, have a genuine faith, a real saving faith, than a merely perceived one. And God bless us to know the difference. Father in heaven, Grant, O Lord, as we praise you and thank you for your word, that you have revealed truth to us, and we pray that this truth will be impressed upon our hearts, that we may have a true and abiding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might rightly honor those who have gone before us, hearing the message of those who are faithful to you. And Lord, may we listen to what you actually have spoken, rather than what we wish you might have said. Oh, Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who was willing to give warnings, who spoke strong words, who upset so very many that we may see that he is the real and actual one true Son of God and Savior who came to rescue sinners. Give us eyes to see him and ears to hear him and if this preacher has said anything here today that is contrary to your word, I pray that it will quickly pass from our minds and hearts. But for whatever has been said that is your word, grant that it may abide in us always. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Not just take my life and let it be, but take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. Let's stand together and sing as we close.
standing at the door, I need to duck back there and have Sunday school class with those who would like to come. Gluttons for punishment, they are. Or anyone who would like to come. But let me grant you the blessing that we enjoy as those who trust in the Lord Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said to